Uh, this will be the final class for the series of the Confession. And it's been a long road, if you've been with us since the beginning. Uh, it's been a long, long road. <clears throat> but I think it's, a, it's been a very profitable one. Uh, we've covered very important doctrines that not only display our distinctives as Reformed Baptists, but also where we have unity with other Christians in the Reformed tradition and beyond that. Uh, going back to the fathers and the apostles. Our confessional stance, by the way, and I think this is important for me to say, our confessional stance has never been to overshadow the Bible, but rather to express what the Bible teaches with the goal of making plain to all what we believe the Bible is about and to draw a clear line between ourselves and those who hold to false doctrine. And I hope this class has served that purpose and, and served you all well in uh, dis discussing all these um, doctrines in our confession. Today, I'll be covering the final chapter in our confession, which deals with the last judgment. Uh, and I can't help but think about uh, myself when I was a child. I remember seeing the movie Terminator 2 uh, for the first time, and there was something about that movie uh, that's still eerie to me, and I'll talk about that. For, for, for those of you who are familiar with the movie, there was a scene where Sarah Connor has a dream where she's standing at a fence. I don't know if you remember that scene, where she's standing at the fence, and she's watching children play in the playground, and suddenly there is a blast in the sky. It's almost like an atomic bomb had dropped, and it exploded, and she is basically there witnessing before her eyes the end of the world as the blast sweeps through from afar, uh, burning everything in its path, and it reaches closer and closer uh, to the playground, and then eventually it reaches her and everything else. Uh, the scene ends with a scream of horror as she's shaking the fence and everything is burning. Uh, now, this isn't in any way an analogy of the biblical last judgment, nor is it uh, even close to the imagery. However, I will say that as a young child, this scene, a very graphic one at that, left a heavy impression in my heart and in my mind. I was fearful for a long time. Um, and you would think that I would have taken this scene a bit lighter, being that it's a science fiction movie. Uh, besides, the movie had all kinds of obviously fictional elements to it. So why was this scene so significant to me? Well, the reason why it was significant and so heavy in my mind was that I knew deep down inside, even as a child, that we, as mankind, were not just going to live on and on without a pivotal moment of a final judgment. It's just something that I knew, you know. Uh, something told me that we were in trouble. <laughs> even as a child, I, I, I believe this. And I knew that one day we were going to pay for it. And I think everyone knows this to some extent. There are all kinds of theories about the final day or a doomsday or the end of the world. A lot of it is silly. But what it really reveals, I think, is the reality that God is not idle. Uh, he will one day deal with mankind. And uh, as it says in Exodus 34, God will by no means clear the guilty. Even the little things that the... Uh, that, that people do, the small things, uh, things like having the wrong attitude, or uh, if you work in customer service, um, 
someone giving you the wrong attitude. Um, these little details that you think, oh man, you know, just people out there, they are just this way. and uh, All those small little things, God will actually deal with them. And God has, in fact, appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Uh, and so that's the theme. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, uh, let's turn to the confession. Let's look at paragraph one. And let's start there. Can I get someone to read paragraph one? So I'll begin by stating that, in a sense, the day of judgment is not the only day which will determine the destinies of men. Uh, their destinies were already determined at the time that they died, right? We kind of talked about that last week with the inner, intermediate state, um, what happens when the person dies, they actually go somewhere. And so in a sense, we have uh, judgment already established there, right? When you die, you either enter into the presence of God or into some uh, form of torment. But uh, I'm looking at Hebrews 9.27, and it says here, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. As I mentioned last week in the class on the intermediate state, the scriptures reject this idea of soul sleep. You don't die and then you're unconscious for a little while until the day of judgment. No, you're conscious when you die and you go somewhere, right? The righteous will pass from this life into the intermediate state in bliss, paradise, while the wicked go into misery. And if you want more information about that, just hear our last class. We have it online. Just look, at, uh, look for the intermediate state. Uh, that was the class uh, of last week. But what is then the difference between the wicked and the righteous experience now in that intermediate state, and what will they experience after that day of judgment? Well, first, in that intermediate state, they were already judged at death, and their judgment was, in a sense, private. It wasn't that judgment of of, uh, coming before God uh, in a a sort of formal sense. Uh, And that's what you get when you die. While the Uh, On the contrary, the the official day of judgment is different in the sense that it will be a public judgment in which the secrets of men will be disclosed. And then secondly, I'd say that the intermediate state, which is that moment where you die and you go somewhere, what you're experiencing in that intermediate state is an experience that is bodiless. Your body is rotting in the grave. Your soul went either into the presence of God in paradise or into, into uh, uh, hell. Their bodies lie decaying in the grave while their souls are in places either in peace or in anguish. Um, yet at the day of judgment, and this is the day that we're talking about, that one final day, all the dead will be resurrected. Their souls uniting with their bodies and then come to appear before the throne of God. And so in this final day of judgment, God will call out your dead, decomposed body and unite it back to your soul so that you can come and experience that final judgment. 
You see the difference there? So the difference then is that their everlasting punishment or their everlasting bliss, depending on where you go, is in body and soul, while in the intermediate state, it's just your soul alone. Now, on this day of judgment, the wicked will then be publicly condemned before the world. There's something about this public uh, sort of uh, exiling or a public uh, sentence where everyone will witness the separation uh, from, from that person and the, I guess, the good presence of God. Um, so again, the difference is that their everlasting punishment or everlasting bliss is in the body and soul, and while in the intermediate state it is the soul alone, on this day of judgment the wicked will then be publicly condemned before the world and the righteous publicly rewarded before the world. And all heaven will bless and praise God for his decision. So you're going to have people going into hell and people entering into heaven and that final judgment and the righteous will applaud it. Uh, so, what is this day of judgment? Again, there is a day of judgment in, in which all people uh, that is, have, have ever lived will come and stand before him and give an account of their words, as it says in the uh, confession, their words, their thoughts, and their deeds. And this is a day which should, I think, rightly awaken fear. And I, I think uh, with the churches that we have today, and not to be critical about uh, the churches that are out there, but I think a lot of uh, churches out there, um, they, they emphasize on the grace of God without properly balancing it with, um, you know, what's going to happen here on, this, on the judgment day, um, where it should balance it out with, a, in a sense, uh, a kind of fear before God, knowing that he will expose your thoughts, your deeds, um, and so on and so forth. And we, we need to have a, a fear of that, I think. Uh, now, for some, this will be a terrible day. And for believers who are hidden in Christ, this will be a day of joy and victory. And it's important to see uh, why that is, and, and we'll get into it. Um, look at Acts 17, verses 30 to 31. Can someone read that? times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Thank you. So you'll notice in the beginning of that verse, it says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so this time um, speaks on a time when God, in a sense, let nations go their way. And, and this made sense because God already had his own nation, right? At least in a typological way. But now that Christ has come and suffered for all kinds of men, the people of God are no longer confined to a single nation uh, in, a, in a physical, visible sense. <clears throat> Uh, and we see this concept in Revelation 5.9 where there's a people of all, you know, of all nations. <clears throat> and therefore, as the gospel goes out to these nations, uh, those who are uh, effectually called by the gospel are to respond to it positively. Otherwise, they have no peace with God. And God, God's command to everyone is this command to repent. 
Uh, and it, it assumes that if they do not repent, there is this consequence uh, in which uh, God will come and judge them. <clears throat> uh, so again, the call for everyone is to repent, to turn back from sin, or turn from sin, excuse me, and turn toward him. And the motivation given for people to repent is because there is this day of judgment coming. This day appointed or fixed, as uh, Acts 17 says, is that day of judgment. And the one who fixed it is God himself, who he himself will expose the works of the wicked on the last day and give each man according to their works. And although God is said to be the judge, we can read further in that uh, passage in Acts that this judgment is by the man whom he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you think about the wrath of God, um, the one who is afflicting this wrath on the person who is condemned, right? When God comes and judges you and you're condemned, not you, but the people who are outside of Christ. (laughs) It's Jesus Christ himself who's afflicting this, this, uh, this torment. It's, God, it's Jesus Christ who is uh, bringing a, a, upon this, uh, this sinner uh, the, the judgment of, of torment and hell. So Jesus Christ is the judge of the world. Uh, and he will come and he will judge. Uh, he will judge all. John 5, 22 to, through 23 says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And uh, not to get off track, but I think this speaks to um, the Islamic religion uh, where they do include Jesus in their religion. However, they do not honor him in the way that uh, he's to be honored. you don't honor the Father if you don't honor the Son, and I think that's clear here. Um, <clears throat> God has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son. Uh, some say, oh, you, you uh, Reformed people, you Calvinist people, you're all about Jesus, but you, get, you forget the Father and you forget the Spirit. <laughs> you, you're so Christ-centered, but what about the other two persons of the Trinity? Um, well, <clears throat> it's not our fault. <laughs> Uh, the Father tells us that to honor Him is to honor the Son. And the Son tells us that uh, the Spirit would point us to the Son. <laughs> so, uh, if you want to honor the Trinity, you, you honor the Son. You worship the Son. It is through Him that we have access to God. And so, uh, so it's, right, it's right for that uh, to be understood that way. <clears throat> and here we see that it is the Father's desire that everyone may honor the Son just as they honor Him. And in other words, that all may honor the Son as divine. You're not honoring the Son if you like Him and that's it. You honor the Son when you recognize that the Son is God. And this is why uh, <clears throat> uh, the Nicene Creed reads, very God of very God, when it talks about Jesus Christ. He is the one appointed by the Father's authority to be the judge of the world. And on that last day, the Father will judge no one but the Son as divine and as the perfect image of the Father. Um, He will act on behalf of God the Father as judge, and and he will judge every man according to their works. 
John 5, 27 says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now, Acts 10, 42 says that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And also we see 2 Timothy 4, 2, it says basically the same thing. Uh, Paul says in Romans 2.16 that God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So it's important to tie this judgment with, with the Son. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 <clears throat> says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of who? Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Uh, Matthew 25.31 likewise records... Christ as the one separating the sheep and the goats in the final judgment. So again, just reiterating the importance of that. Uh, it is Christ who does the judging. <clears throat> now, going back to our passage in Acts 17, uh, 31, we see that the subjects of this judgment being the world, uh, Scripture teaches that both believer and unbeliever will appear before God in the last judgment. Um, this is evident from many passages. I, I don't have time to show you all of them, but I'll just share with you the, uh, the references. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12.14, Matthew 7.21 through 23, uh, Acts 17.30 through 31, um, uh, let's see, 2 Thessalonians 1.5 through 10. These passages tell us that both the unbeliever and the believer will be judged. Okay? So keep that in mind as, as we develop that. Um, we have times in Scripture where it warns of the judgment against the wicked. That's probably the obvious thing, right? We know that the wicked will be judged. You see that in Matthew 10, 15. Also Matthew eleven twenty two. You see that in 2 Peter 2, 9. But you also see scripture talking about believers standing before the judgment seat. Uh, and that's, you can find that in Romans 14, 10 through 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Uh, so they both will stand before the throne of God on the last day, and that is, I think that's what scripture teaches. Uh, not only men, but check this out, also angels. Angels will come before the judgment seat of God. Um, some uh, scripture references for that. I don't have time to go through each one, but I'll share with you. Matthew 8, 29 tells us that angels will be judged. 1 Corinthians 6, 3 tells us that angels will be judged. 2 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 4. And also Jude 1, 6. <clears throat> now, going back to paragraph 1, uh, look at the second sentence all the way through the end. Uh, it reads, In that day the apostate angels will be judged. So also all people who have lived on the earth will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, deeds, and to receive a reckoning according to what they have done in the body whether good or evil. Uh, so this states that 
even the apostate angels will be judged. And this is the day of judgment, not only for men, but also for angels. Um, I'll show you some scriptures here. Matthew 8, 29. Uh, we read the, the demon uh, speaking about a time in which he, along with his companions, will be tormented. Uh, it says, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before time? So, judging by this passage, the, the angels or the uh, demons, if you will, the fallen angel, um, knows that there is a specific time in the future in which Christ himself will come and, and judge him or them. Uh, can someone read Second Peter 2? Four. Yeah, so to be kept until the judgment. First uh, Corinthians six three. Can someone read that? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Yeah. So there is a judgment of angels. There. <clears throat> Now, there are a lot of questions and speculations about that last passage, uh, or these last passages. Uh, who are meant by, by the angels? Is it only the fallen angels, uh, the demons? Are good angels also to be included? <clears throat> the New Testament is not clear whether good angels will be subject to judgment since they're sinless. But it's clear that the demons will be, fallen angels will be. Uh, what's the nature of this judgment? That's another question. There are a lot of questions about that, but there is also a lot of speculation uh, because Scripture does not seem to say how exactly the saints will judge angels. You see how here it seems to imply that uh, believers will be judging angels. Um, most seem to think that the judgment will consist in merely approving the judgment of God made against the fallen angels and, and the wicked. Some have concluded that the nature of this judgment that, uh, that we will have over, that judgment that we will have over angels will only be a kind of participation of Christ's actual judgment, right? Being that we are united to Christ when Christ judges these angels that we are, in a sense, participating in that judgment. Um, that those are just... Uh, positions out there. Uh, we get an idea of this concept from 2 Timothy 2.12. Um, you don't have to go there, but it says, if we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. And so they, they have this, you know, they develop this idea that uh, our endurance in him is because he endured, our reigning with him is because he reigns. Uh, but I personally don't know how we're going to judge angels. <clears throat> Moving along, the Bible also teaches that the last judgment will take place at the coming of Christ on the last day. Uh, this is to say that the judgment and Christ's return is actually one event. Okay? The judgment and Christ's return is actually one event. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10, I think is a good passage that will help us uh, see that. Can I get someone to read this? This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Okay. 
adjust to the pain of affliction that's been afflicted. It's a great relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The flame of fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you. Thank you. I want you to look at this passage very carefully. Okay, it tells us that we will be granted relief when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. You see that in verse 7. So there's a relief when Jesus comes with his mighty angels. There is a relief to those who are Christians. But it goes on, uh, <clears throat> says he will not be granting relief to every single person, right? Um, rather, it says that Jesus will be revealed in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who uh, do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Through which they will suffer eternal destruction, which you see in verse 9. And this will happen, all these things, right? Relief, relief to the saints, vengeance to the unbelievers, uh, eternal destruction, all this will happen when, and you see it in verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Notice that on a singular day, and with that same singular return and revealing of Christ, two things happen. His coming brings joy and relief to his people, but on the other hand, it also brings eternal destruction and misery to those who do not know the gospel. And again, this is the final judgment at the second coming of our Lord. Uh, final judgment and the second coming all at one, in one event. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.5 also seems to connect the time of judgment with the coming of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his co uh, commendation from God. And so you see uh, judgment before time there, before the Lord comes, and how it connects to who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Uh, you see the coming of the Lord uh, connected with also this judgment and uh, revealing of what's in the heart of man. Other, other verses support this. For example, John 12, 48 says that the judgment will take place on the last day. That's John 12, 48. Matthew 25, 31 begins with, this, with the coming of the Lord in glory before going into that final judgment. You see that connection there. Uh, and with that said, it is assumed in the confession that the day of the Lord is connected with that day of judgment, um, which, which is the day of the return of Christ. Now, in light of this, let's talk about the standard in which God will judge. How will he judge? On what standard? Based on what standard will he be judging? Um, let's dig into that. I'd say that the standard in which he's judging man is the standard of himself, right? himself, his holy nature. Uh, you see this in 1 Samuel 2, 3, where it says, The Lord 
is a God of knowledge, and by him, actions are weighed. Right? So, so oftentimes we think of a list of do's and don'ts. Um, and God is going to whip out that list and judge you based off of this list. And in a sense, that's true, right? We have the moral law, the moral code written in the tablets, the Ten Commandments, which is a universal law that doesn't expire with a nation, right? Uh, one of them is thou shalt not murder. It's still a thing today. <laughs> you should not murder. Uh, that didn't expire with a nation. It didn't expire with an older covenant. The commandments are still uh, upheld today. And the commandments are just a, in a, uh, in a sense, a human, uh, a way for humans to understand the moral character of God, laid out for us to understand it in, in, a, in a visible way. Uh, and it is this in which man is being uh, judged by on that judgment day. Uh, he, namely God, is the standard which determines what is right and what is wrong. And as we mentioned before in our class on the law of God, uh, his Ten Commandments, the moral law, is a reflection of his morally excellent character and the standard in which everyone will be judged by him. Uh, moving along, the paragraph ends by saying, and to receive a reckoning according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Uh, there's a lot to say about that. I think the big question that stems from this is the question of whether or not believers will also face judgment. How's that going to look like when a Christian comes up to get judged? We know from the gospel that believers are saved from condemnation, right? There are no, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the question is, will there be a judgment for them ultimately, uh, being that they are saved by Christ and Christ's work alone? Scripture seems to indicate that there is no indication that this judgment will be limited only to the wicked. Uh, Matthew 12, 36 tells us that men will be judged for every idle word. Romans 2, 16 tells us that men will be judged for every secret thing. But I think a, a, a more clear uh, proof that it's, it's likely that Christians will be judged as well is Matthew 25, 34 through 46. Can I get someone to read that? And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? No. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you curse." into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them and say, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you. So this parable seems to indicate that both the righteous and the wicked will be judged. And it, it would seem that the righteous will be judged in a manner that would not be one of condemnation, obviously. Sins that would be revealed to us would be immediately pardoned by virtue of our union with Christ. <clears throat> Should that cause us to fear that God is going to confront us? Um, maybe. Um, but it, it's not, it, it shouldn't be a fear of... Uh, Hopelessness. I think that uh, part of that will be um, acknowledging the work that the Spirit has done in you as a Christian. Um, the Scripture also talks about rewards there. Uh, so when we think about the judgment for the Christian, I think uh, in a sense it should it should cause us to fear God in a way that makes us want to pursue sanctification. It should, it should cause us to pursue um, holiness and, and, and guarding and protecting our lives from being deviated into a, a lifestyle of sin. Uh, it, it should motivate us in that sense. But it should not bring the type of fear that uh, makes us think that we are going to lose what was given to us in Christ. Um, it should... Um, it, should pro it should bring joy to us that all things will be made right, right? Justice will be served in that, in that sense. Um, and, and again, uh, it, it, it just, just sort of reiterating this, that it, it wouldn't be a, ju a judgment of condemnation. Uh, God will highlight all that has, in a sense, made, made it through the fire of his holiness. He will bring, uh, bring out what fruit was produced in your life. And I think, I think that is probably what is going to characterize the judgment of the Christian. Um, again, this is just kind of reading between the lines. The scripture is not too clear about how that will actually play out specifically. Uh, but we do see that there, it, it is a time of horror for the person who is an unbeliever. They have nothing but themselves to stand on right before that judgment. Uh, all they have is what they assume they did for God. Um, and we, we know from Scripture that even the best of their works are that of a filthy rag. Um, so again, uh, sins that would be revealed to us would immediately be pardoned by virtue of our union with Christ. And, and this is the view held by Burkhoff and uh, Bavink. So I feel okay about it. Just throwing that out there. Uh, this may also open up questions about the nature of rewards, right? Um, why is the Christian receiving any reward knowing that um, it's really the spirit who produces the good in us? Um, I don't have time to cover that one. I think that's a very interesting topic uh, to talk about the nature of the rewards and, and how that works out. Um, but uh, hopefully we can, get, we can get at that another time. Moving along, let's look at paragraph two. Can someone read paragraph two? The end of God's appointing this day is to 
Thank you. Now, um, in connection to Christians being judged on that last day, even though it's not clear on how that will look, we, we, we can see at least God's purpose in that. And you see it in the first sentence here in uh, paragraph two. God's purpose for appointing this day is to manifest the glory of his mercy. Let's stop there. So uh, the judging of Christians, even though they're saved by grace in Christ, that moment is a moment where God is glorified. He's glorified because he's having mercy on these people. And so this is one of the reasons why it's important to know that Christians will also appear before God in judgment. Um, this, is to, um, this, is to, this is for God to manifest the glory of his mercy. I'm going to read that first sentence again in paragraph one. God's purpose for appointing this day is to manifest the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. Now, notice the language there. Uh, it's stating that the reason for God appointing this day of final judgment is to manifest his glory. In other words, if you summarize all of history in, in this one concept, right, the glory of God, things start to make sense in life. And, and this is something that I believe is unique about Christianity in comparison to uh, many ideas that circulate the world in relation to what life is all about. Uh, for this reason... Many who reject the Christian faith struggle with our concepts. They're like, I don't understand the doctrine of hell with you Christians over there. It doesn't make sense. Why would, you know, that's not fair, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and and the, the reason why this is so confusing to the unbeliever is that in their thinking, they do not have as top priority the glory of God. They can care less about the glory of God. They're thinking about, you know, who's suffering, who's not. Um, and they're trying to figure out justice according to their fallen ideas. Um, so again, for this reason, many who reject the Christian faith struggle with our doctrines, our concepts, especially with respect to the judgment of God. And it's easy for an unbeliever to accuse the Christian God to be an unfair and unmerciful God. Many struggle, like I said, with the reality of hell. But it's only when you prioritize the glory of God as the chief purpose of all things, then all of a sudden things start lining up. You say, oh, hell makes sense. Burning for eternity actually does make sense, as, as horrific as that may be. When you don't prioritize the glory of God as, as, the, as the ultimate thing in this world, in existence, that being top priority over all things, things like hell, things like predestination, Things like election, all those things are like, oh, God's not fair. When you prioritize God, God's glory on, at the top, uh, things begin to line up. The first sentence here tells us, uh, in relation to the final judgment, that God will manifest his glory in two ways. First, God will manifest the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect. Right? You see his mercy being highlighted there. God will get glory in that. And secondly, the more controversial uh, one is that he will manifest the glory of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate. Now, what many Christians struggle with is the question of, of how, does God get, how does God get glory from punishing unbelievers forever and ever? Uh, if, if you've ever read 
uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon on uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I mean, I, I thought I was comfortable with the doctrines of grace. When I read, uh, there's a part in Jonathan Edwards' sermon uh, where I had, to, I had to read about it, pray about it, and then reread it again, um, where he is describing God's justice and how his wrath is, uh, is, 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 like a, is like someone stomping on a helpless creature. And the creature is in agony. He is being crushed by the foot. And in that agony, he is, he's, he's hoping for some mercy, a little bit, because he's being crushed by the weight of, of God's wrath. And the way Jonathan Edwards, I mean, I, I shake thinking about it. You have to read this part. Um, the way Jonathan Edwards describes God's sentiment about that person being crushed and wishing for uh, some air, some relief, a little bit of relief. The attitude of God there in that illustration is uh, of no mercy, not even a little bit. Um, it, is, it is a continual crushing. And with, our, with the way that we think as fallen creatures, uh, it's hard for us to grasp that. But don't be fooled. Don't think that your understanding of justice has a place in, uh, in the discussion of God's justice. Uh, God's justice is, is, is right. It's always right. And uh, God is giving every person an opportunity to turn from their wickedness, right? Uh, those whom he've elected. Uh, in other words, if you're sitting here right now and hearing me or hearing the sermon, you've been given another opportunity to turn from your sin and trust in God so that that is not your fate. But not only that, the crushing of God's wrath upon you is something that you, in a sense, uh, have asked for. As you've rejected God throughout your life, through your deeds, through your desires, uh, you, you are basically uh, calling God's wrath upon yourself. And so it's important to, uh, to take advantage every time you hear the gospel and remember that this is a grace. This is a grace. God is giving you this opportunity to turn from your sin uh, and trust. Trust in, in his son. So we see that he will manifest the glory of his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate. Uh, Romans 9, 22 through 23 uh, gives us a biblical um, support for this idea that God is getting glory in those that are uh, receiving uh, the wrath of God. Romans 9, 22 to 23 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Here we see that in God punishing the wicked, he makes known his power. And it goes without saying that the manifestation of his justice, which by definition is making things right and giving what is due, upholds his holy standards and proves his righteous character. And this is why it's such a glorious, um, glorious moment. When God 
administers his justice, it, it's good for our souls to know that he gets glory for that. You know, it may seem like, wow, uh, that's kind of a, a hard doctrine. Um, but it is good for our souls um, when we see God paying the wicked what they deserve. And, and the one thing that we can trust is that God will not exceed his uh, punishment in an unfair manner. God will give exactly what the person deserves. So uh, we don't have to worry about him going overboard or giving less. He's going to give uh, perfect and exact justice. A good picture of this is a judge in a courtroom who sentences the criminal. There is, in a sense, a, a display of righteousness when justice is served. I always bring this, uh, this example up. I, you know, if you go to YouTube and you search uh, uh, courtroom sentences and you see the, the person on trial who, is, who has raped children or who has uh, molested children or is, who has uh, murdered uh, multiple people uh, and the person just begging the judge to be easy on them. And as you wait for that final sentence when the judge says, absolutely not, you are, <laughs> you're getting the death penalty. Uh, and even that is not, a, you know, in a sense, a perfect uh, form of justice. It's just a human example of it. But you, as, the as you're watching this court thing happen, you're hoping that justice is served as you consider all those whom have been affected by the sin of this one individual. And so in the same way, um, we look at the justice of God and we say, amen. We say that God, who is the judge of, of the world, will do right. Um, and, and to that, we see Revelation eleven seventeen through 18, where the people of God will, in the end, praise God for his punishing of the wicked. It says here, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name both small and great, and for the destroying the destroyers of the earth. So again, the top begins with, by saying, we give thanks. And on the bottom it says, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is tough to imagine, but I trust that at, the mo at that moment, our hearts will be aligned with God's, and we will see true righteousness and justice the way that God sees it. Moving along, the paragraph goes on to say, For at the time the righteous will go on into everlasting life and receive fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked, who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, will be thrown into everlasting torment and punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so... Uh, the righteous who are basically considered righteous because of, their, because of the imputation of, of the righteousness of Christ. It's not their own inherent righteous, in righteousness. Uh, but the righteous will, receive, will be received in the new heavens and the new earth um, and, and will be welcomed 
into that, right? We see that in Matthew 25 where it says, Come, you who are blessed by, the, by, by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. So we, we, we are being received with open arms. We who should have had that other fate, right? The, the, the being crushed by God's wrath. We're now being welcomed in with open arms. Those are the ones whom Christ said, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous, these are the people um, who, who will be received uh, in heaven. On the other hand, to the wicked, he will say, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, Paragraph three uh, tells us that the wicked will be thrown into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from uh, the glory of his power. Um, I'm just kind of getting ahead of myself there, but um, hell is described as a place which uh, fire burns the wicked. You see this in Matthew 5, 22, uh, Matthew 18, 9. It's a place in which the wicked are present, both in body and soul. Uh, hell is identified as the unquenchable fire. You see that in Luke 3, 17. Uh, in other places, hell is described, although the name is not mentioned, uh, as um, in this way that Christ will burn the, the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see that in Matthew 3, 12. It's said to be eternal fire. Uh, Matthew 13 tells us that the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. So will be at the end of the age. Um, So the judgment of the wicked in hell will take place at the end of the age and it will be with this fire. Uh, Hell is described as a fiery furnace in Matthew 13. Revelation 20 tells us uh, uh, that it is the lake of fire. It is described as a place in which the worm does not die, uh, which is uh, which is a, which is an interesting analogy. Uh, if you think about the metaphor, typically a worm feeds and then it eventually dies. It's a creature. When you think about fire, it typically burns until it consumes its fuel, then it just expires and the fire just goes out. Yet when you read Mark 9, and it, talk, it uses that same illustration where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, um, Jesus describes this place of torment where the worm will not die uh, from feasting on the sinner, and the fire continues to burn but never fully consumes the body. And that's kind of hard to swallow, but this is Jesus' description of hell. Um, the condition of those in hell is also weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see that in Matthew 8, Matthew 13, Luke 13, and so on and so forth. Um, and so these are just, I'm just kind of running through certain descriptions of, uh, of, of, of how the Bible describes the experience of hell. Matthew 25 tells us that it's eternal. I know there's annihilationists out there. Uh, but Matthew 25, uh, 46 tells us, and these will go away into eternal punishment, 
but the righteous into eternal life. Uh, and so this verse seems to imply that hell is eternal, hence the word eternal. Uh, but to be fair, the word eternal isn't always, it doesn't always mean everlasting, but when you see the parallel in that passage, it, it contrasts those who will have eternal life. And so uh, heaven is described as, as everlasting. And so when you parallel it, you kind of have to com come to the conclusion that the eternal punishment is also everlasting as well. Um, running out of time, uh, give me two minutes. I just want to go quickly through uh, paragraph three. Uh, can someone read that? Thank you. Uh, so, Paul, after speaking about the judgment seat of Christ, says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. All right, 2 Corinthians 5, 11. And so, uh, I'll start by saying that Christ spoke more about hell than any other subject because he knew it was terrible and he forewarns us about uh, where our choices bring us. And therefore, it is a mercy from God that he gives us a description of hell. He tells us about it. Um, and, and Paul was aware of how terrible uh, it is to be under God's condemnation. And, and Paul knows what, was, what he was saved from himself. Uh, and, and in light of that, we see what it says in Hebrews 10.31 up here. It says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So when the confession tells us that Christ desires that we be firmly convinced that a judgment day will come, it's so that we would repent from our life of sin and turn to him from salvation. And those of us who are in Christ, we gain comfort knowing that when that judgment comes, we'll be safe and every wrong will be made right. A couple of verses, Luke 13, 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, it's a time where no one knows when will it will happen. Uh, you see this in Matthew 24, 36. But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Um, and then uh, Mark... 13, 35, 37 tells us, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of his house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So again, we don't want the master to come back and see us sleeping and neglecting uh, our call. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and stop there. Uh, next week, uh, our class will be a Q&A session. And I think this will be a good opportunity to maybe ask questions where maybe you see we didn't cover a specific uh, subject or a specific topic. Uh, we, we, got, we went through 32 chapters of the confession. Um, and so there's already a good amount of questions, but feel free. Today would be your last chance. We have that green box in the back. 
If there's anything that was discussed uh, uh, that you didn't understand or you have questions about, write it down, put it in there, and uh, the elders and myself uh, and, and Desmond will take time to answer these questions thoroughly. Uh, let me go ahead and pray and close this out. Our Father, your word has proclaimed that a, a day of your final judgment has been established. And I pray, Lord, that we would take heed and hold fast to Christ. May our hope of salvation be in him. We ask that you would keep us in the work of your kingdom so that we may be found as good and faithful servants to you, Lord. Uh, may we also be humble enough to recognize that apart from Christ, we would have no hope in surviving your judgment. And so we praise you and we thank you for your mercy uh, that we have in Christ. And Lord, we await for your son's return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.